Good morning. Today is Sunday, the 17th of July, 2016. In 1945, five military planes took off from Florida on a three-hour training mission and they never returned. Was this disappearance a horrible accident or were the men another victim of the Bermuda Triangle? Today I have the story of the unsolved mystery of Flight 19 on Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Sometimes I wonder if someone that I've wronged had died and has been reincarnated as my cat because she's determined not to let me do anything, just sit on the couch while she sleeps on my lap. You know, you only have a few more weeks to enter the Coffee with Jeff mug contest, and thank you to all that have already entered. I received a couple of wonderful emails last week. Thanks to all of you. Uh, and for your chance to win a free Coffee with Jeff mug, just send me an email at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. Just say, I want to win a damn mug. I'll pick the winner on my 100th show. And yes, you can use Facebook and Twitter to enter as well if that's more to your liking. So originally I began working on a show in which I review and comment on about another episode of In Search Of, the 1970s show hosted by Leonard Nimoy. I watched the Bermuda Triangle episode, but here's the thing. There wasn't a lot to comment on. You see, rather than rehashing old stories about the Bermuda Triangle, the ones that have been told over and over again, this episode seems to focus on interviews with people who've experienced strange things while in the triangle. And there was nothing to really be said about that because there's no other information about those people except on the show. So what I decided to do was rehash one of those old stories myself and tell the tale of one of the stories that got this whole Bermuda Triangle thing started in the first place. So you see, what I'm going to talk about is... Oh, wait, that means UFO news. The headline reads, UFO spotters claim NASA shut down ISS feed to cover up another UFO sighting. This was according to the CW39.com website. And this is one of those stories that I've seen in numerous places. I think it was even on CNN. You see, it appears that NASA's live feed from the International Space Station mysteriously shut down just to say quote-unquote flying saucer seemed to be approaching the Earth. Come on, NASA, what are you trying to hide here? The UFO community wants to know. And so far, NASA has not commented on the latest feed shutdown. Does that make you think or what? But back in April, a spokesperson for NASA said that NASA never shuts down the feed. The signal just gets lost once in a while. Oh, really? It's not a spaceship. Do they expect us to believe that maybe it was uh, just a meteorite or a Chinese spaceship or a sun flare? Come on now. How many times do we have to go through this? If it's unexplained, it's either a flying saucer, a ghost, or a Bigfoot. 
Anyway, let's get to our story. The unfortunate story about a bunch of men who disappeared back in 1945. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. The south coastal beaches of Florida bask in the warm Caribbean breezes. But the tranquil waters might obscure a mysterious phenomenon that preys on those who venture into the coastal area. Whatever it is that haunts the waters between the Florida coast, the islands of Bermuda, and the Bahamas, has claimed cargo craft like the White Sulphur Queen. In the open waters of the Atlantic Ocean, there abides a phenomenon difficult to explain, a danger zone that seems to swallow ships and planes. No one has found a satisfactory answer, an area of some 60,000 square miles in which lurks the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. Have you ever seen that Steven Spielberg movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Remember that scene in which they find a bunch of planes in the desert? That was Flight 19, five planes that disappeared over 30 years previously. At the end, the crew from Flight 19 walks out of the alien ship, and they've not aged since they went missing. There really was a Flight 19. It disappeared in 1945, and many people say that it was because they were flying in the Bermuda Triangle. Of course, when the flight went missing, the idea of the Bermuda Triangle was not yet in the public's consciousness. What we know as the Bermuda Triangle began on September 17, 1950 with an article in the Miami Herald by Edward Van Wrinkle Jones, who suggested that something strange could be going on in the area around Bermuda. One of the stories he talked about in his article was the disappearance of Flight 19, in which he wrote... It took off from the Navy's Lauderdale Air Station on December 15, 1945 for a navigational training flight. The hours passed and darkness fell. Anxious officers called to them by radio, and they were answered with only silence. The hours passed when the fuel would be exhausted, and the search planes were sent out. Among the searchers was a big lumbering rescue craft, a PBM with 13 men aboard. None of the five torpedo planes with 14 crewmen were found despite the greatest search in Florida's history, nor did the PBM rescue craft ever return. Jones only gave a quick overview of the story, which had happened only about five years earlier. He does say about this and other incidents that these crafts and the people aboard had gone missing without a trace. Two years later, in a short article called Sea Mysteries at Our Back Door by George X. Sands and Fate Magazine, also covered these unexplained occurrences, including Flight 19. It was Sands that first talked about a strange triangle. He wrote, The region involved, a watery triangle surrounded roughly by Florida, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico, measures less than a thousand miles on any side. A small area on any mariner's map, it is hourly being plowed by vessels of many nations. It is guarded over by radio. It is under constant surveillance from dozens of commercial airliners that fly over it daily. 
Sand's article was the first to suggest that something going on in this area was caused by something supernatural. In 1965, in the February issue of Agosi magazine, featured an article called The Deadly Bermuda Triangle by Vincent H. Gaddis. He began his article with, What is there about this particular slice of the world that destroys hundreds of ships and planes without a trace? So he finally gave the area a name. He called it the Bermuda Triangle, a name that would really catch on. Ever since then, books, TV specials, movies, articles have all kept the idea of a deadly part of the ocean in the public's mind, each one expanding on the myth, heightening the legend to the point where most don't know what is the truth and what is not. One thing is certain, while there have been many stories of strange disappearances in the area, Flight 19 seems to be one of the most popular. What happened on December 5th, 1945, and is there a possibility that there is another explanation besides the supernatural? Fort Lauderdale Hollywood Airport in Florida was a busy naval station, a place where war-weary veterans waited for their discharge papers. At a little over 2 in the afternoon, five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers, known collectively as Flight 19, took off from the Naval Air Station. They were on a three-hour routine navigation and combat training exercise in which they were to head from the Florida coast for about 56 miles, then conduct bombing runs at a place called Hens and Chicken Souls. After that, they would turn left and travel northeast for about 67 miles. Then, taking another left, they would travel southeast for 120 miles till they returned to the base. The flight leader was a 27-year-old Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor. He was an experienced six-year naval veteran with more than 2,000 hours in his logbook. He served 10 months flying combat missions in the South Pacific in World War II. Earlier that day, according to his roommate, he received a letter that really upset him. He refused to say what was in the letter. He just shoved it into his pocket and went off to hear the flight plan. At the meeting, he reportedly asked not to fly in the mission and said, I just don't want to take this one out. He offered no explanation of why he didn't want to fly, but his request was refused. One of the crewmen who was on the training mission was Robert Gallivan, who, was, who had recently completed 18 months of combat duty in the South Pacific. Once this day's mission was over, he would be headed back to his home in the North Hamptons. All he had to do was complete one simple exercise. Another crewman, Alan Koznar, for some unexplained reason, asked permission not to be on that day's flight, and since he had already logged in enough hours, he was granted permission not to fly. According to a Sun Sentinel article from December 1st, 1985, called The Legend of the Lost Patrol, Koznar said, for some strange reason that I cannot explain, I decided I did not want to go on that flight that day. But once the planes were up in the air, the mission seemed to proceed smoothly, as smoothly as Flight 18 earlier that day. Soon after, however, the weather would begin to worsen and would continue to get worse as the day went on. The planes reached their targets and dropped their practice bombs as scheduled, but when they began the second part of the mission, things went a little crazy. For some unexplained reason, Flight Leader Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor thought something was wrong with his compasses, and the group was flying in the wrong direction. 
when the winds began to increase and it began to rain, the group became hopelessly disoriented. I don't know where we are, one of the pilots said over the radio. We must have got lost after that last turn. Navy instructor Lieutenant Robert F. Cox was flying when he heard the strange radio communications. A voice was talking to someone named Powers, asking him what his compasses were showing. Cox informed the air station of the situation, and then after several attempts to contact Flight 19 to ask if they need help, he finally got a response. Both my compasses are out and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Taylor said in a panic. I'm over land, but it's broken. I'm sure it's the keys, but I don't know how far down. Taylor was advised to put the sun on his port wings and to fly north until he reached Fort Lauderdale. He was also asked by base operations if his aircraft was equipped with a standard YG-IFF transmitter, which could be used to triangulate the flight's position, but this was never answered by the group. Taylor radioed, We are heading 030 degrees for 45 minutes. Then we'll fly north to make sure we are not over the Gulf of Mexico. The base couldn't make out their position, nor were they receiving the IFF transmissions. When Taylor was asked to switch his frequencies to the search and rescue frequencies, he responded, I cannot switch frequencies. I must keep my planes intact. Where Taylor claimed to be just didn't make any sense. He was new to the area and may have gotten confused thinking that the islands of the Bahamas were the Florida Keys. This would make him think that he was miles off course. Normally, a pilot would just fly towards the setting sun, flying west, and this would take them to the mainland. But not if he believed he was over the Gulf of Mexico. Then he would travel northeast. If he confused the two, then he might be flying out to sea. One of the other pilots must have realized what was going on. He was heard saying, Damn it, if we would only fly west, we would get home. You might ask, why didn't the student just fly west since he knew that was the right thing to do? Well, the answer to that is military discipline. I mean, one could face a court-martial for not following orders. At around 4.30 p.m., Captain George W. Stivers, who was another pilot on Flight 19, was heard over the radio saying, We are not sure where we are. We think we must be 225 miles east of the base. Then after a few moments of static, he said, It looks like we are entering white water. And another pilot said, We're completely lost. Radio communications was getting harder and harder as the weather began to worsen. It is believed that the group was 230 miles out to sea when Taylor radioed at about 5.30. We'll fly 270 degrees west until landfall or running out of gas. And then he requested a weather check. It seemed the whole time Taylor ignored the standard procedures even though the students reminded him of what he should be doing. He even failed to have the pilots use their radio homing devices which could have guided them to the air station. It seemed like for a moment Taylor was persuaded to turn around and head east, but shortly after 6 p.m. he must have changed his mind and turned back. We didn't go far enough east, he said, probably thinking that he was in the Gulf. We may as well just turn around and go east again, he said. At this point, many believe that one of the planes took off on their own, maybe after arguing their position. Through the static, Taylor was heard telling his crew, All planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we'll all go down together. 
That was the last message heard before it was replaced only with static. At 8 p.m., it was assumed that the planes would have run out of fuel. They were never seen again, but that's not the end of our story. The Navy started to search almost immediately. At about 7.30 p.m., two BMM Mariner flying boats, each with 13 crewmen, were set out to begin the search. 20 minutes after takeoff, one of the search planes disappeared from radar. This plane and its 13 men, like Flight 19, were never seen again. Now it might seem like an amazing coincidence that a second plane went down, but this one might have a reasonable explanation. Some reports say that the BMM Mariner disappeared without a trace, but uh, that's not exactly true. The BMM Mariner flying boats were known to be accident prone. Because of their tendency to catch fire, they were called flying gas tanks. The idea that this plane was the victim of a bad accident was basically confirmed when the SS Gaines Mills reported that they had witnessed a fireball from an apparent explosion and then saw an oil slick mixed with aviation gasoline in the water when they arrived to investigate. For the next five days, more than 300 boats and aircraft searched for Flight 19 and the Mariner. Nothing was found. They just vanished, said Navy Lieutenant David White. The original investigation report put Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor to blame for becoming confused and disoriented as to their location. But this was later amended after Taylor's mother complained that her son was being unfairly blamed. Because the men in the planes were never found, she felt there was little evidence to point the finger at her boy, so the official cause was changed to cause unknown. Was this just an unfortunate accident, or was it another victim of the dreaded Bermuda Triangle? With so much of the story pointing towards the leader confusing the Bahamas for the Florida Keys, the whole case is fairly easy to understand, yet there are some that have brought up some very interesting points that have yet to be explained. Like these planes should have been able to float for hours after being ditched at sea. Well, that's not exactly true. In an article in the Oakland Star Banner newspaper in 1985, former Navy Lieutenant William L. Stoll, a buddy of Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor, said, well, they didn't call those planes iron birds for nothing. They weighed 1,400 pounds empty. So when they ditched, they went down pretty fast. He also said of Taylor, I know for a fact that Taylor wasn't the best navigator in the world. Charlie got lost once flying out of Boca Chica and spent five days on a raft in the Caribbean. He went on to say, that was the first time I ever heard of anyone getting lost off the coast of Florida. You don't need much navigation where he was. But when you're confused as he was, you sometimes do a lot of dumb things. It's a psychological thing. You get yourself into a state. Another fact that keeps people thinking that something supernatural or extraterrestrial caused the incident was the fact that the Board of Investigation's report remained classified for more than three decades. What was the Navy trying to hide? It was most likely an attempt to conceal the inefficiency of the rescue units when the flight disappeared. 
See, what happened was an Eastern Airlines pilot saw red flares rising into the night sky while flying 10 miles south of Melbourne, Florida from a small island, of which there are hundreds in the area. The search consisted of a single helicopter that flew three times over one island that was surrounded by marshy terrain. No ground units were involved in the effort, and the thick marshes could have made spotting injured airmen impossible. Apparently, the board criticized the individuals who had been in charge of the search, and this resulted in the demotion of several high-ranking officers, including one admiral. When Lieutenant William L. Stoll was asked about the Bermuda Triangle theory in the Miami News in 1985, he said, Today the whole incident is treated as mostly entertainment, but too many people got killed for it to be a fun thing. It was too close to home to be entertaining to me. I still remember it well. On December the 5th, 1945, five U.S. Navy Avengers took off from a Florida airbase on a routine training mission. But something went wrong. The tower suddenly received inexplicable radio messages. In a panic, the pilots reported they were totally lost. The ocean and sky appeared strange and unfamiliar. Then, silent. A mariner rescue plane was dispatched to look for the missing flight. Suddenly, it too lost radio contact with the tower. A massive search was launched, but the five Avengers, the mariner and 27 crewmen had totally vanished. No wreckage and no survivors were ever found. These planes vanished in an area off the coast of America known as the Bermuda Triangle. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. So since there are two separate unfortunate incidents on the same day, with planes that took off from the same airbase, some ask, what are the odds? Hey, what are the odds of winning the lotto? Yet someone does. It's called coincidence, and coincidence is the conspiracy theorist's best friend. Just like in today's UFO news. An object is seen on a feed, there's a problem with the feed, it must be a cover-up. Two things cannot happen at the same time. Larry Kush is or was a librarian at the Arizona State University and has been investigating the Bermuda Triangle and trying to learn the truth of what was going on. In 1975, he published his own book entitled The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved. He found that many of the so-called strange accidents were not so strange at all, that many times facts were left out of stories like storms and such, to just to make them sound more mysterious. Sometimes ships that reportedly vanished mysteriously had actually been found in their, and the cause of their sinking well explained. In one case, a ship that was reported to be missing in the Triangle had actually gone missing 3,000 miles away from the Bermuda Triangle in the Pacific Ocean. Many of these stories are still passed on today as facts of why the Bermuda Triangle is mysterious. He also checked out Lloyd's of London's accident records and found that the dreaded area of the Triangle was no more dangerous than any other part of the ocean. And the U.S. Coast Guard records also confirm this. But why am I talking? There's one thing that's certain. If people want to believe in things like the Bermuda Triangle, 
they're going to believe in the Bermuda Triangle. So if you're one of these folks that believe that somehow, some way, things happen more often in that area of the ocean than anywhere else, then I think you need to pick a reason. I mean, what is it? Is it weather patterns and typography? Or maybe methane gas that comes up from cracks in the ocean floor? Oh wait, no, those are too boring. How about pirates? They're certainly exciting. But no, those aren't mysterious enough. Some people think the area has strange magnetic properties which causes compasses to act strangely. There's even a theory about a time warp, a rip in the space-time continuum that suddenly transports people to different times, either in the past or future. Of course, the lost city of Atlantis could be down there, and some of its amazing technology could still be active, messing things up on the surface. We can also go with the standard extraterrestrial presence. That works in most situations. Personally, I go with this. It's a great gimmick to sell books and makes great film plots. And now, the ending credits. We at SciCon could use your help in keeping our podcast going. You should think about becoming a sponsor at our Patreon page. Just go to SciCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm for more information. And of course, a sincere thanks to all of you who've already supported the show. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. On this week's Half Pints and Whole Notes by Josh and Rebecca from a seedy basement bar in St. Paul, Minnesota, they talk about the first bestest albums of 2016. Basically, the best music for the first half of the year. And on a personal note, I'm still waiting to see Becca in her dinosaur costume. Check out this and other shows at Psycon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. It's a great place to complain or just say hi, and I'll answer your email. I always do. A couple people did it this week, and I really appreciate it. Don't forget to enter the contest to win a mug. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, and we have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, and believe me, that's something I understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. Those reviews really help. And remember, all the links to the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And I want to throw a special shout out to all those that repost this show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. And quickly, thanks to all of you who've checked out my video show on YouTube. That's fantastic. Until next week, bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with